You are listening to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, brought to you by SustainableHomesOfTheFuture.com. I'm your host, Ian Sollenberger, and this podcast is for anyone that wants to collaborate and learn more about how to design and construct energy-efficient buildings for an environmentally sustainable future. If you have questions about how to design and build with a lower environmental impact, or you'd like to come on our show as a guest, please email me directly at info at SHF, that's Sustainable Homes of the Future, shfbuild.com. Uh, visit our website at shfbuild.com or find us on Facebook and Instagram at shfbuild. Our mission with this podcast is to inspire you, our listeners, to go out and be sustainability advocates. Share these ideas so we can truly push this industry forward. We need each and every one of you to help us build the future today. Welcome everyone to Building the Future, Green Building in the New Millennium, uh, the podcast where we explore everything sustainability related uh, in the built environment and also the human environment uh, and the technological environment and beyond. We'll see where we go today. Um, I'm very excited today to have Brett Little. Um, bring up his picture there. There we go. For any of you watching. Um, Brett, thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to. Um, Brett is the program manager for the education and certifications arm of the Green Home Institute, which is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They are a not-for-profit um, that does fantastic work uh, getting the word out, really, and, and doing webinars. I've been on probably a dozen at this point of, uh, mm -hmm. of Brett's webinars, and he's a great moderator and knows uh, a ton about not only the building industry and, and building science itself, but specifically green building, sustainability-related um, innovations, different options uh, when it comes to electrification, which I'm sure we'll talk about today at some point. So um, a, a wealth of knowledge. Thank you, Brett, for joining me. And uh, I guess my first uh, question is, you know, you've, you've, before you were the managing, uh, the program manager for the education arm, you were uh, the executive director for the, for the entire program. Um, and it looked from the, your resume, like basically you were doing a little bit of everything, um, probably still are. But my first question is, do you, Brett Little, have a sort of working definition of sustainability? Um, how do you approach it? Is it different project by project? Or do you sort of go in with a particular mindset and, um, and then figure out where on the spectrum you're going to land based on clients, uh, et cetera? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, it, it kind of all formed for me uh, back when I uh, went to college to get my um, sustainable or bachelor's of science in sustainable business. Nice. You know, the entire time 11 years ago, we're just uh, talking about sustainability when it comes to business and having ideas and kind of definitions thrown at us. So it really got crafted in me during that time prior to that time i was sort of just a lost environmentalist like how do i apply this to do anything good right other than just get upset all the time <laughs> and no offense environmentalists yeah. do a lot of good work but uh i just didn't know where i fit um so i went to uh, aquinas college um and started getting this and we really talked about a lot about the triple bottom line i mean that was sort of where our definitions lied for sustainability so just that maximizing um, uh, you know, financial returns uh, or profit, 
while also improving um, benefits to the environment and to society. Um, so that's kind of been uh, underlying uh, goal of sustainability for me. And then I really get excited about the um, International uh, Living Future Institute yeah. and you know what their uh, definition is. And you know they really talk about uh, culturally rich, ecologically restorative, and socially just. So it's really kind of taking it to another level. And I've always really lately been inspired by that. Um, and then, yeah, obviously on a project by project basis, you kind of take that high level of inspiration, right, and you sort of bring it down to the you know where you need to be on a project and use it to help move that project forward. But every project, of course, has its limitations on how far the clients want to go or what the budgets are because you guys are you know green home institute i assume that most of the folks that are coming to you are on some level interested in sustainability and and uh you know sustainable applications of mm. you know building science and innovations and, and things like that um you know what's what are some, give us a, maybe an example of a project where sustainability is like way at the end on the project goals and, and some things that you might implement um, in that case. And then, you know, high level, somebody comes in and has this, you know, uh, really cool project that they want to work on and they've already basically done the, the research and, you know, how does that differ on, mm. on the spectrum project by project? Yeah, that's great. I mean, typically, um, and again, depends on where the project is. Uh, and what its requirements are. So, you know, some of the um, affordable housing projects we work with are pursuing tax credits. So, you know, they have to achieve a certain outcome or level, uh, you know, whether they're uh, excited about it or not is one thing. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, on the flip side, we get clients that come to us with really big goals and big dreams of achieving certain levels of sustainability. Um, so sometimes, you know, the ones that are kind of on one end of the spectrum, it's really just a matter of, it's just trying to figure out, okay, where are they currently at with their plans? Where do they measure up at? Um, and especially focused on energy efficiency and operations, especially, you know, if they're involved in paying electric and gas and water bills, what are some of the simple ways we can find products that we know work and they're tested they're going to move the needle on their energy goals and or energy ratings and their water efficiency usage. Uh, and then also try to walk away from that with just, you know, getting them to really bump up on um, health and ventilation and ensure that their occupants have, you know, proper ventilation um, coming to their, to their units or to their house. And, you know, just making sure that that fits in with their needs and advocating that, Hey, you know, you know, maybe putting in a, a better working bath fan that's uh, on a timer that hits a certain level of a ventilation pole, you know, really is pretty easy to do. And it's going to help out your occupants, uh, you know, hit that health level. So that's kind of where we're having those conversations, just really trying to figure out where they're currently at and then just get them to move to that next level. The other types of clients who come in the other direction, it's almost like trying to get them to focus on... <laughs> really what it is they want to achieve. Is it, you know, a healthier home? Like, is that really where you want to be or is it net zero? So you're, or trying is to find, it, you're trying to find their why in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why are you doing, cause there's so many things we can do and we can look around and try to do all this stuff and it can become overwhelming. So, you know, just where is it that you really feel your focus is and can we hone in on that 
and go after that area. And I imagine with that second group of folks um, that it's almost sometimes people don't realize uh, that maybe one specific project goal and another specific project goal, while both could fall under the, the category or the umbrella of sustainability, might actually be in opposition uh, to one another. And, and I, the goal, you know, as far as I understand in, in, in my work is integrating all of those things and trying right. to find those points where you can get some redundancies and maybe eliminate variables, eliminate redundancies. Um, so yep. is that is that some of that focus that you're talking about is like, well, actually you can't have, you know, it'd be really nice if all of your pipes were copper, but then you couldn't lean against it. So, uh, you know, <laughs> well, well, that and practical, you know. Yeah, absolutely that. And then the idea of goals outside of green building, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, let's just be honest. Um, the larger a home is, right? Uh, you know, the more difficult it is to achieve these results. Part of it's just science. You know, you've got to keep more heat in mm -hmm. a home to reduce energy. And the more space you have to heat, the harder it is. So you have sort of these goals of having this, people don't have a goal of ever having a large home. It's just utility. How can I get, you know, comfort? How you can I get usefulness out of it? So is there a way to have a conversation where you have these big energy efficiency goals or, uh, but you also have this home uh, that's using a lot of space in an area that maybe isn't as is helpful. So working with designers to figure out how do we get smaller spaces with more utility out of them? Mm -hmm. uh, so those are other things that we're excited about in, co in our conversations. How easy uh, or hard is that, you know, when somebody isn't really thinking about square footage and then, and then you put that magnifying glass over the, the, the design and say, you know, this would, we could achieve your energy efficiency goal if we cut your house in, you know, yeah, and again, you, off. right. And part of it's, you know, for us, we're not architects, we're not designers, we're not designing homes. So we kind of stay out of that other than to just say, look, you know, your house is going to use all this energy and it makes your goals very difficult other than caking on a bunch of extra solar panels, which are really expensive. Right. But, you know, maybe, uh, you know, is there a strategic way we can figure out how to get more usefulness out of your home? And here are some folks you can work with. And I'll be honest, it is a difficult conversation and it doesn't, you know, most of the time it does not, uh, they would tend to just throw more efficiency at it than shrink space down. Um, but as budgets get tighter and, you know, there's a, a recession, it, you know, those conversations, I think people are m more willing to have them. So, yeah. Yeah. Maybe they don't need the, the, you know, thousand square foot mudroom anymore, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or maybe it can be rearranged a little bit. So yeah. exactly. Yeah. Smart design. So speaking of smart design, integrated design here, um, how often are you involved from like day one? on a project uh, hmm. and how often do you come in at the end where basically all the decisions are already made and you're just like the one yeah. trying to like find some way to check another box off. Yeah, it's really more the latter. It's just really? sort of like squeezing the green person at the end and try to sort of fit all the puzzle pieces together. Um, you know, other times we will get invited at the beginning before anyone even knows what it's going to look like. And it's like, you know, well, we can't tell you, you know, we can't give you any advice because we have no idea what your house is going to look like. <laughs> so it's a sweet spot where you want to get right into the early design stage where you see some sort of, you know, you know, basic uh, elevations or whatever, you know, just site a plan, basic yeah. site floor plan. 
that can be easily changed and switched around without too much effort or anyone getting too offended that they spent a lot of time. Now on existing homes, obviously that is a perfect time because you get in and you evaluate what's going on. And especially if someone's living there, you get that idea of what's, you know, what's been happening. Um, so obviously, you know, the best time in an existing home is always yesterday, right? Always get in as early as possible before right. you start thinking too ahead. But in the in a new home, it's really kind of that middle ground between having some kind of idea with the ability to still manipulate it, you know, even change housing size, ideally. So that's cool. Um, yeah, that's neat. Actually, I, I hadn't I had thought about the coming on the back end, maybe a little too late to really be involved, but I had never thought about being so far on the early side that you, there's not really much for you to do other than just sort of advise, I guess. Yeah, um, I mean, if I was an architect, they'd be like, sure, let me design, but it, you know, that's, you just stay out of that, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, are, do you find that one of the factors or one of the reasons that you're um, coming in later in projects is lack of awareness? Uh, you know, that people just aren't aware that that's a feature that, that sort of needs to come in earlier? Or are you finding that it's a cost thing? Because if they bring you in earlier, then they have to pay you for the additional time? Uh, there's, you know, those are two, I mean, those make, yeah, big, those are big ones. Uh, the other one could be that um, they, uh, you know, they heard about some kind of financial resource or something, right? And so needed to have a sustainability component when they heard about the financial resource. The other one is they might just assume that the building code is as good as it gets and didn't even realize that you can, there's a huge gap between where we want projects to be and where building code is and all the gray area in between. And so when they realize, oh, you know, someone could help me manage that gap, whereas, you know, I thought originally the construction team or the design team was building it and designing it as good as it possibly could be. Um, so those are all ways that we might get pulled in. Okay. Yeah. So when you were in school, you know, it was 11 years ago and you were studying sustainable business. Um, you talked about triple bottom line and that's kind of where you guys are right now. And I love that because yeah, that's, that's where it's at. Um, uh, people mm -hmm. profit planet. That's, yep. uh, USGBC's definition of sustainability, you know, yeah. um, what, what were the conversations like about sustainable business 11 years ago? And how have you seen that conversation change as somebody that, you know, that was mm -hmm. studying it more on the business side and, and, and less on the housing side initially, the building side? Yeah. Um, you know, we, it, it, the conversations, <laughs> thankfully I'm a sort of optimistic, idealistic, right? I mean, that's who I am. And so, a lot of these conversations were kind of out there, really high level, really futuristic goals, unless you lived in maybe California or Portland or Europe. Mm -hmm. It was tough to have these conversations in West Michigan because we would go to class, do all this stuff and then leave and then go into the real world or go to an internship and people, you know, nowhere near <laughs> what we were talking about. Yeah. And we're still pretty far off. But I mean, the idea of, you know, uh, you know, we, t we studied cradle to cradle a lot. So the idea of everything being fully uh, recyclable or biodegradable or reusable, being taken back, every single product, you know, that was the dream, right? And everything made from 100% sustainable energy. So not just renewable energy, but energy that, you know, was made in a way that was non-toxic and, 
you know, even the energy systems themselves were 100% recyclable. Uh, and then we talked a lot about biomimicry and this idea that we yeah. can mimic nature in many different ways. So those were a lot of our conversations. And it was trying to figure out how to take that and bring it into the, you know, at least where I work, the West Michigan business community or Michigan or even the Midwest where a lot of our, you know, projects we referenced were. And yeah. how do you get people to just sort of, move towards those goals and have those conversations. And even our teachers, you know, they were, they were just way out there too with their ideas. So as you know, you had to really be able to bridge two worlds and realize where I'm here right now and that's okay. And I might be frustrated, but I want to get here and you know, it's, it's going to be a while and we're going to try hard. So yeah. Is, is cost is proving, you know, cost savings, the, the, I mean, the nexus of, of all of this really. Absolutely. I mean, that was the crux of everything is how do we use this conversation to say this is going to save, you know, money or, you know, get quicker return on investments or make a competitive advantage, you know, that one of those three ways of approaching it. Um, yeah. And that's what I've heard, you know, resoundingly, definitely from uh, from everybody in the space is like you almost have to be a cost analysis guru and then a sustainability ninja. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, you know, you have to go in with the cost savings bit. And then once you've gotten some buy-in, then that's where you can sort of like move the pieces around behind the scenes and say, actually, guess what? You know, I could even get you a little further down the line with X, Y, Z and come up with the, the smart design implementation. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Um, you talked a little bit about renewable energy versus sustainable energy just now. And I'm wondering yeah. if you could go a little bit deeper into that because uh, I think I think that's one area that as solar comes out and, you know, continues to, to roll out on a large level. And then you hear people talk about community solar and yeah. uh, smart grids and things like that. You know, I don't know that, that there are very many experts in that space. Uh, mm. and, I, and I think that the general public probably just sees renewable as renewable and doesn't understand yeah. that difference between sustainable and renewable. Can you, can you uh, go into I, a little bit of detail on that? I think the big one is looking at a dam and thinking, oh, here's renewable energy, right? It gets counted as it is renewable energy or looking at bio-based energy, right? Like mm -hmm. growing plants or cutting trees down. Those two are very questionable because on the bio-based side, you're hacking down trees, destroying land, potentially, depending on how it's managed. Sure. And then on the water side, if you've got massive dams, you're, you know, you're kind of creating you know, ecological destruction further on down, right? Mm -hmm. So our argument would be that those types of systems are really not you know, they're better than, you know, natural gas and coal, but they're not sustainable. And we need to scale down um, dams to small stream water and, uh, you know, bio to a more managed area that's you know, reusable. Now, on the solar and wind side, of course, I know you're looking at, you know, take back systems for panels, right? So what happens to the panels at the end of their life? How can they be recycled, reused? not put into a landfill and cause, you know, potential toxic issues. Um, right. And well, especially while they're being manufactured too. And the mm -hmm. same goes for wind turbines. Can all the parts be recycled? So those ones are a little bit easier to go after that. Uh, or, you know, how do we replicate, um, you know, solar, like the way the trees do, right? Trees, they all use solar energy and it's, they're 100% locally made and biodegradable, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, why can't we do that? So those would be like, 
you know, again, setting that ideal goal to the future, like how do we get energy that way and, and store it that way and use it that way? Um, and again, what we're working on now is great and we want to head towards more wind, solar, just trying to think of, okay, as we get more done, what are the materials actually being made of? So, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So it's really taking that whole life cycle and, and I mean, even to what you're saying about dams, I mean, the, I, I imagine that the, the damage that a dam makes, you probably don't see until a couple hundred years down the road. I mean, maybe you do see some of that initially. Um, right. Or you get a big flood like we had here in Michigan right. and it causes significant damage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone points fingers, but it's like, well, maybe the finger should be pointed at why is there a dam here in the first place? You know, it, maybe that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> so at this scale anyway, so. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, an interesting theme that's come up and, and you just sort of referenced that a little bit um, mm-hmm. as I've been talking to folks is the idea that that these technological innovations um, or just innovations in, in green building and in sustainable uh, building we want to think of them as new technologies, but really what we're doing is we're applying new technologies or, or maybe, you know, information technologies and, and uh, technological advances. But really what we're doing is we're taking, you know, as you, like biomimicry, you know, we're taking systems that exist within nature and then trying right. to, to some degree replicate those or, or enhance those using the technology that we have and really, so it's funny because you think of innovation as, as like a, a path forward and this certainly is, but really what we're doing in order to achieve that path forward is to go back and look at, as you said, like how do, how do trees use sunlight and you know, how to, how can we, um, I talked to, uh, are you familiar with Sean Armstrong, Redwood Energy? Mm-hmm. He's yeah. a big electrification guy and uh, right. he was on the podcast and, um, you know, he was talking about how his, his uh, neighbor is a peach farmer and has developed a system of using the water from this creek that's running through his property, but only using it in an underground way, not pulling the water out to water anything, but using the water and basically using the system that exists there and trying to tap into that existing system. I mean, right. uh what are some advances, some innovations, some ideas, some technologies that, you know, that are sort of next level right now? And can you maybe like give a couple examples of ones that are like pure technological innovation and then ones where it's more about sort of going back to basics or is it, are all of them a hybrid? Well, yeah, I mean, let's start with uh, water, right? You just said water, water use, right? So water falls- Big thing out here in California, for sure. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, you know, water, um, water falls from the sky every day and people have collected it for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, right now what happens is water falls from the sky and it becomes a problem. It becomes something that a a word we invented, stormwater, right? (laughs) A term that we invented as a problem. And so all over we have this big problem, uh, whether it's a flood or not, you know, it's just an issue that has to be dealt with that's expensive. The second problem we have is that, you know, if we're in cities, water bills are going up, 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 up significantly. They don't stop because of all the infrastructure. If we're out in more rural areas, like where I'm at, believe it or not, I'm adjacent to Lake Michigan, not very far. Mm-hmm. Fresh water body. I, where I live, I'm running out of water. Uh, and I'm on a well and I'm running out of water and 
in certain parts of the areas where I live is running out of water faster than others. And it's people like, how can you be running out? Even people in Michigan who live here, like we can't be running out of water. I see a lake over there, but it's just the way things were designed with glacial ice melts and all, all that. So I think rainwater is an old solution with new tech to keep it safe and keep it healthy mm-hmm. that we can use to solve a stormwater problem and a water cost or water shortage problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can significantly reduce, you know, our demand on expensive water systems. Plus, it's one of the cleanest, healthiest, you know, depending on what medium it hits next, right? Mm-hmm. But typically still one of the cleanest or easiest to clean um, sources of water than anywhere else. Um, so we've been an advocate in trying to just get the word out about, you know, rainwater systems as one technology. So That's cool. And uh, if you want to plug your webinar, it was like two weeks ago. I think you had the the rainwater we actually had two back to back. It was not planned out at all, but we had two rainwater catchments. I would say one was more like sort of old home urban uh, rainwater catchment. And the other one was just more general, like they talk, they referenced a lot more rural projects, if you will. Cool. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's a great, you know, go to, go to Green Home Institute's uh, website and check out. There's tons, tons of webinars that, that Brett's been doing for what, the last five six, I, seven, seven years, years maybe now yeah i think so it's been a long time so <laughs> that's awesome man i was i was yeah. impressed when i went on and saw the just the pure volume <laughs> that right. was on there of everything you've been doing yeah um, thank you um and then another technology and i now that now that i know we have a camera here i can show you oh, nice. i can show you some bad news I'm, I'm sitting in radon right now i don't know can you see that oh boy uh, is that or yeah right on 3.3 yeah. is what it says. yeah and that's upstairs so i'm downstairs so it's even worse down here mm-hmm. um so you know the the technology here is um monitoring right of our yeah. air quality that's going to be the future i think um we're all going to be we have we have smoke alarms we have fire alarms we have carbon monoxide detectors we have moisture humidity detectors in our house and our thermostats but we want to know what the CO2 is in our house. We want to know what the radon is in my house. Um, we want to know what the VOC particulates are off-gassing from aldehydes. And we want to know what's happening on a constant level so we can you know, put systems and plans in place to get it out of there um, and have alarms you know, if an issue does happen, especially people who have chemical sensitivities or asthma or other triggers. So the future will be every home will have these devices that are detecting all these data points. Um, And I think having that level of awareness, I'm thankful to Airwaves Things Plus for, you know, sending me this. I've been testing it out for a month now. And I do, I get, um, you know, I can quickly check on my app, you know, all the, uh, you know, data, you know, over the course of, you can see like uh, over the course of a, a month, I can get my CO2 readings oh, here. And it gives you the, the day-by-day readout down there. Yep. And I can get a, I can get a printout to my computer uh, or get it on my computer and I can get much better, easier to look at aggregate data. Cool. Um, and then just get a sense for, you know, what's going on in my house. And especially for me, I'm planning a project improvement here. So now it's actually sort of changed my mind on what I think I might buy to improve my house. Um, but these things are important. I mean, CO2 itself seems, you know, well, CO2, who cares? It's not going to hurt me. It's just warming the climate, you know. But the reality is CO2 building up in our homes, especially now because we're all working here, right. 
we're all working from home, it makes us tired, it makes us groggy, it, it's harder to concentrate. There's evidence to show that you know people lose productivity under high levels of CO2, so it also harms commercial buildings and businesses. Yep. And the worst is if you're having a party and there's too much CO2, everyone wants to go home because they're tired. So, um, but you know, if you, and if you look at COVID-19, while it's very difficult to track, obviously they're working on it in a building, like is it in the air, uh, like influenza. We do know that if there are high levels of CO2 in a building and, and it's in a hot spot area uh, with an outbreak, we could also then assume that that is also in tandem with high levels of COVID floating in the air in a building, so yeah. or influenza, so it's very well connected. You can use the use that as to make an inference. Um, so it's very, I think it's very important to start monitoring our air quality and make informed decisions with it. That's great. Um, and you know, I learned I learned something. You had Nate Adams uh, on, you know, who's part of the Electrify Everything movement, um, yeah, and then also has a company, uh, Badass HVAC. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh shoot. I might have to bleep that out. Cause I, we're not an explicit <laughs> podcast here, but, um, you know, he, I learned that, you know, you had dew point on, you had a humidity and dew point or something like that on, on your, uh, on your airwaves. Thing. Actually, this one's, I was disappointed. They, and I love, I mean, I love everything they're doing and they yeah. just did not have dew point. Oh, so I went and okay. I went and grabbed another little sensor and this one's actually down in this room with me. You see that, and it oh, is actually tracking dew point. Wow. Um, okay. But I was worried about my basement, which you know, typically basements have higher humidity. So, yeah, and that was that was cool for for me to learn. You know, just that every single one of these variables, hmm. whether it's you know VOCs or CO2s, they're all interconnected. You know, they they have to do with dew point. They have to do with humidity. They have to do with you know water vapor. All of these different uh, you know systems that are going on in the house. All the all the thermodynamics that are going on in the house. Um, and, and they're all interrelated and, mm -hmm. and, um, there are, I know a lot of new, uh, not necessarily technologies, I guess, but talking about sort of going back to, to old school stuff, um, and then just improving upon it, this idea of vapor permeability, um, right. in a home is, is one mm -hmm. that's somewhat of a hot topic, you know, for so long you put the vapor seal on the house. That's just what you do. Right. Right. But now we're learning that there are ways to, you know, not vapor seal a house and maybe actually benefit from, from a healthier indoor atmosphere ability, you know, for maybe less mold, less humidity in the walls, things like that. Um, I know all that stuff is climate specific. I know all that stuff is, you know, really specific to the project, but in that particular area, when it comes to, um, you know, vapor permeability or maybe new materials and things like that, what, what uh, is there anything exciting uh, for you in that space or things that you've learned over the course of your career that you're advising, uh, advising people to do in projects these days that were different? Yeah, you know, it's interesting and it kind of, it actually ties in very well because, um, you know, I know, you know, one of the, the questions is, uh, you know, what, what is some of the, the trends, right? What's a hot topic and really sort of this um, uh, embodied or what we call upfront energy or embodied carbon, right? This right. trend to, you know, I've been watching it rapidly move quickly to remove carbon from our building materials. Well, what does that have to do with moisture going through the wall? Well, 
interestingly enough, a lot of the carbon intense insulations also are, um, you know, impermeable in many ways. And so they're trying to keep that moisture out, which we all thought was the best thing to do. But that causes all sorts of problems, like it gets stuck in the wall, it can cause humidity issues. And they typically those ones also have higher VOC off gassing. Mm -hmm. So you've got higher materials that cause potential moisture issues, higher, they have higher carbon output, they cost more money, some most, <laughs> not all the time, but some of the time. Um, and then they, uh, you know, and then they have a potential health with draw, you know, drawback. So our thought is that if you, if you design a building right, you should be able to have more natural permeable insulations mm -hmm. that um, can allow moisture to pass through the walls, um, you know, unencumbered uh, without causing an issue yeah. uh, in the house. And, um, you know, the, this gets back to your earlier question about trade-offs. Mm -hmm. Obviously a lot, unfortunately, the one trade-off is a lot of those have lower R values. Um, so they resist heat a little bit less. And so that's where you would have to find other ways to be more energy efficient. I mean, they're not huge trade-offs, but that's what we do with green building. We don't, we try to maximize all the five pillars of green, right? You know, health, energy, water, materials in place. And so, yeah, you know, energy might, you might use a little bit more energy, at least in that spot, but you're gonna have a healthier, more durable home. That's, you know, not trapping water and moisture. So. Yeah. And, and still, you're probably gonna have to make some changes at some point. You know, I don't think people really mm -hmm. think about retrofitting when they're building a new home. Right. Um, and that's one of the things I've, I've learned from, you know, your conversations, you know, among others is how important it is, especially on a commercial level, if we're talking about commercial buildings for a second, where mm -hmm. your systems are so much bigger and you're, you know, delivering air and, and water and whatever it may be on site, like to more people, working mm -hmm. harder, um, you know, you're, you're gonna build a building that hopefully will be around for 50 plus years and whatever systems you're putting in that building are not gonna be around for 50 years. So that's something that's worth talking about upfront. Um, right. You know, okay, well, what, when should I expect to, uh, you know, redo the HVAC system or when should right. I expect that maybe I should take another look at my insulation and see if there are some better, better options out there is, are those conversations that, that you're having um, with folks on the front end? Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, people want to have more durability and longevity. Um, and so you, you, you do want to have systems that last a lot longer, aren't going to rot or mold or cause other problems. Um, and then, yeah, on the HVAC system side, I mean, that's a big one. You don't want to lock into an outdated, I mean, really that's where fuel is, right? You don't, you don't want, we want to encourage people not to lock into the outdated fuels, mm -hmm. um, which we believe will be, you know, obviously fuel oil, that's clear, but uh, you know, we don't deal with a lot of fuel oil projects. So, you know, more like natural gas, right? If, you know, if you lock into a newer system, you're going to be stuck with that decision for a lot of years. And as far as I can tell, you know, running electricity through our homes, you know, maybe someday we'll get away from that. And I don't know what we'll use, but I don't, yeah. I don't foresee that going away for a very long time. And so trying to encourage people to think ahead and be like, okay, you know, how can you plan for this? Okay. If you're not, if you're going to do natural gas now, um, how can you plan for an electrical change in the future? 
Uh, one thing I appreciate about like the Enterprise Green Communities Program is that they sort of built in this sort of, uh, you know, design for future electrification. Oh, wow. So they admitted that it's like, okay, you might not do it now. I understand, depending on where you're at, but we're going to tee you up so that it's just a quick swap out. Um, but if we can take you further, we can try to encourage you to, you know, not put that system in, you know, really in the first place. Mm -hmm. So are you, um, you know, electrify everything? I think Nate's in, uh, Nate's in Cleveland. So mm -hmm. he's in he kind of not too far from you. Um, yeah. I know it's a huge thing out here in California you right. know, in Berkeley and 31 other municipalities have <laughs> right. yeah. at this point committed to no new construction with, um, with natural gas. Right. Right. Which right. Which is a, a game changer, uh, you know, in a lot of ways for a lot of people, but do you see a similar movement happening mm. over, over there in, in the Midwest or is it a little harder buy-in just because people, because there's less sun? Uh... Yeah. I mean, obviously there's kind of two reasons that it's difficult. The first is just tradition, right? Um, HVAC contractors and everybody. I mean, we all like our tradition. We do what we do. Mm -hmm. And out here, the tradition has been, you know, over the last several years to just put in, you know, standard natural gas furnaces and just keep turning them over. So it's really hard to take people away from that tradition. Um, and then you add in fear, um, the fear that it gets too cold here and that the system, you know, won't work. And then the people responsible for installing it are going to get the angry call you know, in the dead of February when it's negative 13 out that, Hey, I'm freezing in my house. Right. Um, so between tradition and fear, it's very difficult to get the heating and cooling contractors shifted away from this mindset. Hmm. And, you know, we want people to be trustful and trust, you know, be trusting. So obviously developers and project teams hire an HVAC and they trust their word, right? It's like, yeah, he said, it's going to be a bad idea. So I trust what he's saying. Right. Um, so we try to come in and have a conversation. The first part we start with a conversation is just, you know, uh, just sizing, right? Like HVAC systems are notoriously oversized and then perform terribly. So the first question we ask is like, do you want an oversized system that you might be paying more for and having all these issues with? And the HVAC's probably oversizing it, not because they're an awful person, but because they're just they're just moving they're in a hurry and they're just they're doing the same thing right <laughs> so ask them why they're doing that ask them for the sizing and then you know the next conversation is well have you got educated on new technology and how these heat pumps work when it's freezing out and have you talked to people who live in minneapolis and they're in homes with this stuff and it's you know it's minnesota there's probably snow on the ground there right now <laughs> as we speak there's probably a foot of snow <laughs> right <laughs> You know, so August, it's freezing yeah, there. Start these days, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, is it, does it work? You know, have these conversations. And so we really challenge people on this. And if there's enough time to really take on that challenge, they might be interested. But yeah, the, 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 those are the two big barriers. And then obviously some of these systems still come in at a little higher cost because they're not being fairly compared, right? I mean, if you're talking about a modulating system that really works at the level it needs to be and not overworks. And, you know, you're talking heating and cooling. If Because if you're not comparing heating and cooling to just the heating system, then you'll never win on price. It'll just right. 
it won't win. But the second we start comparing these things to modulating furnaces and high efficiency sear air conditioning as the alternative, mm-hmm. most of the time it's a wash financially. Um, and now we're starting to see where fuel switching in the Midwest and in Michigan used to be, you know, a dirty word or, you know, frowned upon from the utilities in the state. They're now actively in some ways incentivizing fuel switching. So it's helping our lives become easier. So, yeah. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah. I mean, if if they're doing it out there (laughs) with those temperatures and all that, yeah, then, I mean, clearly a lot of these, a lot of these next level things are easier to do in, in our climate out here, which is a more moderate climate. Um, right. You know, but so when you hear that, you know, the South is doing a lot of electrification and, you know, the, the utility companies up there are, are even pushing for it. That's definitely good news. Yeah. No question on that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I want to change. We've got about 15 minutes left. So I want to um, change a little bit here. So you do a lot of stuff. You mentioned um, the, the enterprise for communities green building certification. Um, I've attended some webinars that you've done on, on the different building certifications. We have LEED, we have learning, uh, learning, living building challenge. Um, we've got green globes. We've got uh, energy star. We've got uh, DOE net zero ready. Yeah. We've got uh, tons of these. And now we have well and, uh, and fit well, right. which, which right. are, fun new programs that really do focus on just people um, honestly and you know what are if you had to give your top three uh, Mm. certification programs and I I understand that probably those will be linked to a specific either building type or approach Mm -hmm. um, you know what are what are some highlights of, of where the building certification industry is is headed right now I mean, I, I think there is a huge interest in passive house. Mm. Um, I mean, it's just, it's energy efficiency. So it has a quick, you know, cost savings return. There's a lot of people who like the science of it and the challenge of it, the sort of high level sort of pass fail approach to it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I do see a huge, huge growth. Yeah. In passive house um, certification um or just what we would call sort of almost passive house so just this sort of what i always like to say is like you know aim for passive house right like put it out there put it in your project plan and your goal and just try your hardest because if you don't aim the highest then you'll never even get very far right if you just shoot very low so aim for it and then shoot you know you'll get to the end of the project and maybe a blower door number came back by one point point zero zero one off, right? Or a window spec came in wrong by one U value point. I mean, and then you're out, right? You're out of the game. But don't think of it as a failure. Think of it as like, well, what if you had just targeted like, you know, an energy rating of 50% better or something, you would have failed that one probably and fell at 25%. So, you know, you always just want to put it out there and try your best to hit it and then learn from why you didn't get there. And so Passive House is helpful. The U.S. version I'm grateful for because it incorporates the DOE's Indoor Plus program, Zero Energy Ready program. Mm. And so it, and it builds in air quality uh, and being ready for net zero. Um, and then, you know, second to that, all the different programs, whether it be Passive House or LEED, 
Living Building or even our internal Green Star program, we, they all have uh, what we call zero energy components to them. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously a really big trend is trying to get to zero energy. And zero energy is sort of a wild west term right now where anybody gets to say it and there's no ramifications or recourse if you're, you know, there's, you know, if you're wrong about it or you can't really be wrong. Right. And, and so there's a lot of zero washing going on. And so, you know, these certification programs come up with these sort of uh, additional ways to achieve zero and, and calculate it. That's in my way, a more legitimate, you know, legitimate way to do it. Uh, and they all have different approaches, but at the end of the day, they're all high level approaches that really require a lot of work. So zero energy, obviously very catchy term. It's just which program are you going to use to try to define it, but, you know, pick one of the programs and try to, and try to get there. Um, and, and zero energy, you know, to be clear, we were talking about embodied carbon earlier, and this is zero energy is, is focused on operational. Yeah, yeah. So obviously the embodied carbon piece is getting more interest, more excitement, especially from, you know, living building. Um, but yeah, we're purely talking about, you know, the generation of renewable energy and reduction of energy use, you know, over the course of a full year. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. matters in a big way in the in the reuse and, and renovation category, because, you know, then then you're double dipping, then you're, uh, you know, if you can use a building that already exists, and you're not mm-hmm. building new, then mm-hmm. you're already reducing your embodied carbon up front. And then right. you're reducing your operational carbon through retrofits or adding new systems or re-insulating or, you know, uh, weatherization in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we got a lot of you know, millions of existing homes that need a lot of help, multifamily, single family, you name it, townhomes. Um, and they all can be moved down these continuums, you know, to zero carbon. And from an operational standpoint, you know, it might be a little more difficult than a new home, but yeah, you get to kind of have the benefit of not having to put a lot of new materials in to achieve that. So, yeah. Have you had success with, with um, any projects that, were like multifamily retrofit uh, where you were really able to go in and for, you know, not all that much cost really have a, a big impact? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a retrofit. I mean, you know, we've had some success um, with a project, you know, where we were switching them over from, you know, gas furnaces to heat pumps as just, I mean, I count that as a, as a major success. So some, you know, some basic stuff, right? Some brand new windows, a little bit of air sealing, a little bit of energy star appliances, nothing too, you know, out of the ordinary. And, you know, being able to put in the heat pumps, have it be cost effective and be cost affordable in our climate. um, You know, we would say that's success without anything too like, I mean, you could walk into the apartment and it looked like any normal apartment. It didn't look like some kind of crazy green thing had occurred to it. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, if, if they're, you know, at a point where they know they're going to have to be putting some capital into the building anyway, then it's the perfect time to do a little bit of an energy assessment and, you know, or sustainability assessment, if you will, and, and figure out some, some ways that those dollars could probably go to a a healthier and and longer lasting um, and certainly more efficient system. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are, there are homes all over where, you know, the, you know, heating and cooling systems, other systems are going down and need to be repaired. And, and I think, uh, you know, just having a a good plan forward to, uh, 
maximize the sustainability of them. Those are things we're trying to get the word out. Like, you know, there are, you can go and call up your local, you know, remodeler or go to the hardware store and you're going to find some basic stuff. But, you know, if you look a little bit harder, dig a little bit deeper, there are some other great alternatives out there that are going to work. Um, And there's, you know, you know, mortgage rates are down right now. Uh, There's uh, green mortgages coming out from like Freddie Mac called Green Choice. So between those two different things and increasing utility rebates, it becomes easier and easier to flip homes to higher levels of sustainability. I'm planning to do that with my own home, try to hit zero carbon here maybe in the next month or two and use it as a case study. I mean, not have to do anything that's weird that nobody else couldn't do. And, you know, hopefully it could be mimicked. So, yeah. Uh, well, that, that's a great segue into, you know, one of my last questions, which is really, you know, now you're, you're on the education side to, to a big degree. Um, and obviously most of, I'm assuming most of the people that are attending webinars and are people that are, have an existing interest, you know, are already in the business trying to keep their, their finger on the pulse and, you know, learn more and be able to mm-hmm. deliver better uh, product or better experience for, for clients mm-hmm. um, or a better building, you know, whatever it may be. What do we have to do to get legislators and uh, you know, community advocates and, and um, uh, you know, city council folks and, you know, what do we have to do to, to get them educated and, and get them on board? I mean, I guess I'm answering my own question a little bit and assuming right. that the answer is education or awareness, but um, do you agree with that? You know, what, what can we be doing uh, as mm-hmm. advocates or as people listening to the podcast? Like can, can the average individual do anything to further this process in your opinion? Well, I think, you know, tying it into how it can be an add-on and benefit to other problems. So, you know, I hate to say it, but this year, you know, two big problems have come up, all right? And they're kind of on the front of everybody's mind, and that's, you know, um, COVID-19, so health. How do we be more healthy, right? How can we be healthier in our spaces? Now everybody wants to know. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it's elevated the conversation to things that we could have only hoped that people cared about before. Yeah. And, and racial justice, which turns into environmental justice, right? Yeah. Um, and so between those two things, how does the building science movement, you know, help in those areas? You know, and, and there are huge ties in there. And so obviously people are, that's on their mind right now, policymakers and advocacy folks. So how, So I think, you know, kind of going in and saying, look, you know, helping people who are in who don't have access to, um, you know, healthier housing, you know, lower utility bills, you know, from a a justice standpoint, why don't they have that access? Well, how do we help them get that access? How do we, you know, get the word out about that and move the needle and then also reduce carbon emissions and make people healthier. Mm -hmm. And then also, again, people just on the market side going out and trying to say, how do I make my house healthier in case, you know, I either, you know, there's probably no way to stop stop it once it enters your home, but at least how do I make myself healthier to protect myself against it uh, or this commercial building that I'm walking into? So, oh, we have an answer for that. It's basic ventilation standards, right? We know this already. So it's like saying, hey, we've been talking about all these things. We want everyone to have affordable utility bills. We want everyone to have a healthier home and building. And so now I think policymakers, the building science community can jump up and say, hey, look, 
we're not going to be able to solve these problems, but some of the solutions we've been prescribing create jobs, they create local jobs, and boom, they help with your uh, energy efficiency goals that your city probably has, and they help with some of your justice goals as well, I would, I would argue. Yeah, so let's, let's figure out a way to, you know, attack all of these at once, and, and we sort of have some solutions. Yeah. <laughs> so why not listen? Um, that's great. Uh, last question. You want to give a shout out to uh, anyone that has been, I guess, a, a mentor or, uh, you know, anybody that's sort of inspired you in the field uh, along the way. I, I'd be curious if you have a, like an mm -hmm. anecdotal story or something about that. But, um, you know, clearly this is a this is a movement that's still small and we're trying to grow it. And so, you know, there are a lot of a lot of folks in the space that are really have. Uh, had to have big voices. And um, I'm curious if there's anybody that's really influenced you in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, honestly, our, the founder of our organization, um, uh, Mike Holcomb, who really took me in and was very patient and mentored me. I knew nothing about construction or anything. I just cared about sustainability. Um, and he, you know, really took me and helped mentoring me. He was a home, you know, home energy professional assessor since 1980, one of the original energy star wow. assessors, a home inspector, yeah. and then, you know, became one of the original Leap for Homes quality assurance directors when there was only like five way back in the day when I was still just graduating high school <laughs> uh, before I knew anything. And so he, he's been a great mentor and, you know, I appreciate everything he's done for the movement. Um, even at times when, you know, he's someone who didn't really care about solar panels and all of what we call eco bling, all he really cared about was just looking at the details and helping people reduce their energy and make their buildings healthier and kind of, you know, kind of kept his head down and just focused on the day by day. And it was, you know, just really inspiring to see that because most people want immediate action and so, uh, or immediate results. And so it's always great to see someone just dive into the details and be patient and help you come along. That's awesome. Uh, well, thank you to Mike Holcomb, uh, <laughs> founder of Green Home Institute. Thank you, uh, Brett Little, uh, current, basically, director of everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to say it. That's not your official title, but um, <laughs> do you want to, I'll put up some, some links, obviously, to Green Home Institute's website and stuff, but uh, for anybody listening, if they're looking to, you know, contact you for a project or for information or for uh, webinars or certifications, um, where can they, they reach you? And if you have any other links you want to throw out there, now's the time. Yeah, yeah, Brett, uh, Brett.Little at GreenHomeInstitute.org, which is our website, um, which, you know, Green Home Institute uh, is on YouTube, so you can subscribe and get updates on all sorts of great uh, events and uh, webinars that are completely free worth CU, so we'd love to see you out someday. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Brett. All right, thank you, Ian. Thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>